Mr. Chairman, as a corn root, I speak for millions of my kind who can't be here to defend themselves. Pests are stalking our stocks and undermining our roots. But we can elect to protect with a legacy of strength. Poncho Votivo 2.0 seed treatment system increases nearby microbial activity to help us grow stronger. That's smart. Ladies and gentlemen, please, this is a corn roots movement. Ask your BASF seed advisor about Poncho Votivo 2.0 seed treatment. Always read and follow label directions. Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, it's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you for joining us and letting us be part of your day as we wrap up another interesting week. Glad you have joined us, and here's what we're going to be talking about on today's program. Of course, today, a lot of uh, reports are out, a lot of numbers, and we're going to go over all those on Monday. We'll have analysis and reaction to those numbers coming up on Monday. But today, we're going to talk with Ethan Lane, Vice President, Government Affairs for the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, uh, NCBA, applauding the administration's plans to uh, promulgate new regulations to implement the National Environmental Policy Act. We'll be talking about that with Ethan Lane. We're going to talk with Michael Langemeyer. He's ag economist and ag economist at Purdue, and we'll go over the latest Purdue CME Group Ag Economy Barometer numbers. These will be uh, as of uh, producers' sentiments uh, in the month of December. What do the numbers tell us? We'll go over those numbers a little bit later on. And as I'm going to start doing from time to time, we're going to have Mike Soapbox a little bit later on. I'm going to just share some of my thoughts. Uh, Today I'll be talking about these new plant-based products coming in to the marketplace. So that's coming up a little bit later on. But we're going to start things off by talking it over with Jerry Hagstrom with the Hagstrom Report. Jerry, thanks for joining us. Well, good morning, Mike. It's uh, uh, it's an almost sunny day in Washington. We'll see here. <laughs> it's cloudy at the moment, but looks a little bit better. Yeah, I think there's probably some rain headed your way. Well, let's talk about USMCA. It's making progress on the committee level in the Senate, but the big question mark is what's going to happen with impeachment. So depending on what happens there, we either get the maybe USMCA vote rather quickly or it may get pushed off for a while. Well, that's right. Well, there are actually two issues. One is that the Senate parliamentarian ruled that several other committees uh, have jurisdiction over this agreement. Now, they're all expected to approve it, and Senator Grassley hoped that they would just not do anything and just let it move, but, all you know, these committee chairmen all want to get uh, give their committees a chance to talk about it and vote on it, and so that's supposed to happen next week. So we know that there's not going to be approval of USMCA next week. Then we have the question of what happens with the articles of impeachment. The... Um, uh, the Senate cannot proceed with the trial, apparently, until, until House Speaker Pelosi sends the articles over to the, uh, to the House. Uh, but now Senator McConnell is backing a resolution that would say that if they, they don't send the, the um, articles by January 12th, the Senate could dismiss the articles of impeachment. So we'll have to see what happens there. Uh, if they send it over and then we're in impeachment mode, 
Then we go back to Senator McConnell's earlier statement that there won't be a vote on the uh, USMCA on the floor until after the, uh, uh, after the impeachment process is over. A lot, of, a lot of political gamesmanship is going on, and we'll see how this all plays out. Meanwhile, is there a buzz of anticipation about the next week's uh, supposed signing of the U.S.-China trade deal, or is it more of a, we'll believe it when we see it, or what's the, what's the mood around it in Washington? Well, I think that, first of all, that um, the, the fact that the Chinese are sending the vice premier to Washington to sign the agreement is a positive sign, and people are excited about that. I don't think there's any question that the agreement will be signed on, I think it's Wednesday of next week. Uh, but the real question now is what will China buy? President Trump keeps saying they're going to buy from 40 to $50 billion in U.S. ag products over the next couple of years. But the Chinese have never used those, num- those numbers. And there is a report from Reuters that the Chinese purchases of uh, soybeans from Brazil indicate that they're not going to need a lot of American soybeans soon. So I think once the agreement is signed, then we will have a real hard market understanding of, of what China will buy and what it won't buy. But right now I would say everyone's being cautious. It seems like as we get closer to it, we keep hearing from the U.S. side about Uh, all these big purchases, what they're going to be buying, and from the Chinese side, we keep hearing about what they're not going to be buying. Indeed, indeed. Uh, uh, So, uh, you know, uh, it's always interesting to see what the market actually uh, produces, Uh, and that's uh, that's what what we have to wait for. Uh, Jerry, what, what are your thoughts uh, in this presidential election year and given the political climate in Washington, D.C., do you see much major legislation moving this year in Congress? Uh, no, I don't, uh, I don't see much moving, uh, particularly since they did get USMCA done. They got the appropriations bills uh, done for the rest of the year. Uh, we don't have any other major uh, uh, legislation moving on the ag side, uh, although the Senate needs to take up the U.S. Grain Standards Act, um, and they, um, they should also approve child nutrition programs, and then there's re- the remaining reauthorization of the Commodity Futures Trading Commission. Now, that, th- now, those things could happen, although I don't think child reauthorization would not, would have a child nutrition reauthorization would happen until uh, maybe the uh, uh, the end of the year. The other thing, though, that I'm noticing about the presidential race is we don't have a lot of big discussion in Iowa about agriculture this year. I remember four years ago when we had those big sessions on what was going to happen with ethanol. I don't see any big programs on on agriculture going on prior to the Iowa caucuses that are coming up in February. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see uh, because the biofuels community is not happy with how the administration has handled uh, the RFS issues with when it comes to the small refinery exemptions. But will more positive trade news with USMCA, China, things like that, will that be enough to offset that in a state like Iowa? Yes, that's what will be interesting. Uh, I'm, of course, interested in seeing who gets the Democratic nomination. Uh, but it doesn't seem like the ag issues have been 
hot in Iowa, and if they're not hot in Iowa, they're not going to be hot anywhere else. It'll also be interesting this year to see does uh, infrastructure reemerge. I mean, that kind of gets hot for a while, then it fades away. Do you think there's any chance that comes back? I have to admit, Mike, I haven't heard anything about that recently. Uh, I keep wishing that infrastructure would be hot, and I, you know, it, in the Obama administration and in the Trump administration, uh, infrastructure always gets put off. And in this administration, it's because they can't agree on how to finance it. The, the Trump administration wants mostly private financing on infrastructure, but I think there's pretty much a consensus that that won't work in the rural areas uh, because you can't get private financing when you have such a low amount of traffic, which is, of course, what you have on all these country roads. All right, Jerry, it's going to be uh, an interesting next couple of weeks and I'm sure another very interesting year. Thanks a lot. We'll talk to you again soon. Okay, great. Always good to talk to you, Mike. Jerry Hagstrom with the Hagstrom Report. Up next, we're going to talk with Ethan Lane, Vice President, Government Affairs for the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, about some proposed changes to the National Environmental Policy Act. Stay with us. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. Recently on Adams on Agriculture... And joining us now is Steve Meyer, economist with Kearns and Associates for some pork market outlook for 2020. Steve, thanks for joining us. What are you expecting here in the new year? A lot of pigs, Mike. I think that's uh, the the lesson we got from the December hogs and pigs report that wasn't a real surprise to us. But uh, continued growth of breeding herd, continued growth in productivity, um, you know, lots of hog numbers. Um, we think that uh, demand has been very good the last year. Domestic demand up four percent or so through October. That's the latest data we have, and and growing exports. And the, the issue still is, uh, you know, the of the top ten factors for the market this next year. The first seven are China. For the information important to rural America, join us on Adams on Agriculture. The sounds of success vary from person to person. Success sounds like this to a credence soybean grower. Along with 43 new varieties this year, credence soybeans come with agronomic expertise from BASF. That means expert advisors who bring local insights on seed selection, management decisions, and crop protection options. Knowing the kind of success you're shooting for? That's smart. Talk to your authorized credence retailer or local BASF seed advisor. Always read and follow label directions. Some measure success by Italian suits, corner offices, and luxury yachts. Farmers measure success differently. It's breathing fresh country air, taking care of the people you love, and knowing how to measure success in your soybean acres? That's smart. With Credenz Soybeans, you get a precise variety bred to fit your acres. And that Credenz variety comes with agronomic expertise and local insights from your BASF team. So plant your sign of success. Talk to your authorized Credenz retailer or local BASF seed advisor. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. 
President Trump has announced that his administration will promulgate new regulations to implement the National Environmental Policy Act. This is being supported and applauded by the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. And NCBA's Vice President of Government Affairs, Ethan Lane, joins us now. Ethan, thank you for joining us. Uh, First of all, explain to us just what is the National Environmental Policy Act. What does it entail? Well, the the National Environmental Policy Act is a piece of legislation that actually originated in the Nixon administration. Um, And it it was originally intended to be an environmental review process to inform decision-making on what they called major federal actions. Um, As is usually the case with with legislation like this, uh, best of intentions over the course of 40 years has morphed into a monster that that is not only required um, in a variety of, of general practices that, that shouldn't require a federal environmental review, but has been used as a primary tool by environmental litigants uh, to, to ground process to a halt, stop things they don't like, shut down operations. Um, it, it has become a fan favorite of the radical environmental movement um, as far as a tool to stop progress. And uh, so as such, we spend a tremendous amount of our time dealing with NEPA, dealing with NEPA litigation and protecting cattle producers from its impacts. Yeah, can you give us some examples how it has impacted cattle producers? Absolutely. Uh, you know, uh, the, the, the easiest low-hanging fruit example is if you have a federal grazing permit, uh, some level of NEPA evaluation is required to renew that permit. If you want to put a new fence in on your grazing allotment, a new, a new NEPA process may be required. But a more general example would be if you have a community that's in an isolated part of the country and you need to get a road to that community and that road touches federal land, you could be held up for 10 or 15 years in an environmental review uh, death spiral uh, to just get that simple road built. That's an example the president used yesterday. But uh, it's that far-reaching. You know, so if you're a cattle producer in the Midwest, if you're in a feeding operation uh, and you need a federal permit, if you, uh, if you need uh, uh, NRCS funds, you could be subject to NEPA. Uh, the, the, the ramifications are, are incredibly wide-reaching. And that's why Secretary Bernhardt in his remarks yesterday said this could be the most impactful regulatory move this administration makes in its first four years. Okay, so they're going to promulgate new regulations to implement NEPA. Do we know what that will entail, or is this now in the process of coming up with the, these new regulations? We, we, we now have an idea of what's going to be involved there, and, and you know we have, along with other industries that are regulated, spent a tremendous amount of time providing input to the administration on, on uh, what we think they ought to do here. Um, we're really pleased with what we've seen so far. They recognize the fact that, First and foremost, you've got to get a handle on a few things. You've got to get a handle on the timeline. These things cannot take years and years. They can't be a 1,000 pages long. Um, they need to be concise. They need to be compiled quickly, and we need to be able to move on with our, with our day. And second to that, we need to make sure that this isn't being applied as a, um, as a, you know, a, 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 a way to just cover uh, people's actions. It can't just be, oh, gosh, we need to do NEPA to make sure we don't get sued. You should only be running NEPA when you need to run it. And if you don't need to, uh, federal bureaucrats need to have enough backing to say, we don't need NEPA here, we're moving forward. Um, and this this regulatory action provides that framework. It provides some additional direction to the federal agencies about how to use NEPA, but also when they don't need it, um, or when they can do what they call a categorical exclusion, where essentially you look at the project and say, we don't need to go through a million-dollar NEPA process here. We, we're comfortable that we can move forward. So it starts to put some common sense back into the process, and it starts to return it to Congress's original intent when they when they passed this. 
We're talking with Ethan Lane, Vice President Government Affairs for the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. So, Ethan, what is the process for getting these rules established and in place? Well, just like any federal rulemaking, this is a, a notice of uh, a preliminary rulemaking, which means it will now be put out for public review and inspection. And and now is when the fun starts in in our world, Mike, because uh, this is when the uh, uh, you know the environmental community will start to bang the war drums. They will start to use their massive email lists, and they will start to drive tremendous. Uh, volumes of, of, of fairly uninformed but engaged comment to this process. So what you'll have is a lot of form comments. You'll have a lot of people passing along emailed comments, basically saying this is the worst thing in the world. Um, this is going to destroy the environment. This is the president stripping away environmental protections. You know, in reality, um, we're going to need a lot of informed producers commenting on this and talking about how NEPA has been poorly applied and how it's actually standing in the way of us doing a lot of the great conservation work that we do on the ground, because instead of doing that work, we're, we're going around and round on review processes that, that, by and large, are designed more for the lawyers than they are for actual uh, practitioners on the ground. So um, now starts a comment fight, essentially, where, where we're going to see a lot, of, a lot of claims made about comments through the door, but what we're going to really be focusing on is those substantive comments, because that's what NEPA says it seeks, is substantive public comment. Yeah, I've already received one of those emails uh, against this move, by the way, so I, I, I know what you're talking about. Uh, so who has the final say in this? Well, at the, at the end of the day, the Council on Environmental Quality at the White House, uh, the President's Council on Environmental Quality, CEQ, is, is, is the overseer of NEPA. They were, they were created as an agency by the National Environmental Policy Act's enactment. And, and so their job is to administer NEPA, but because NEPA is this kind of huge beast, they, they create these top-level regulations, and then each federal agency will then go write their own regulations about how to interpret NEPA. So USDA will then have to have a conversation about how they change their NEPA practices to conform to what CEQ is doing. You, uh, Department of Interior will do the same thing, and on and on. And then, uh, as if that wasn't complicated enough, the agencies underneath those, those departments will start to craft new regulations. So the Forest Service will need to do something new, and uh, so will NRCS. Uh, so will Fish and Wildlife Service and the BLM. And, and so this, this starts a chain reaction process of, of changing how the federal government does business in this arena that will, will take years to work through the process. But the, the benefits as far as clarity and, and, and use and threat, quite honestly, for cattle producers is, is incalculable. This, this has the potential to really be a game changer uh, to take one of the many pressures off of our producers' backs as they go through their work here. So this could take years to get accomplished? Oh, absolutely. This is, this is that far-reaching, and it's that important. This is not a quick-hit kind of deal. This is substantive change to one of the most impactful environmental laws on the books. Um, so this has taken years for us to get to this point. This has taken years of sustained, steady pressure um, on behalf of, of our industry. Uh, my lobby team here in the D.C. office has been heavily engaged on this for quite some time. Um, and, and, you know, this, this notice of preliminary rulemaking from the White House on NEPA is the first step in a, in a long journey um, publicly. Uh, but it, this is, this is uh, uh, the result of years of, of, of effort on, on our industry's behalf and others uh, to get to this point. So the President Trump campaigned on lusting the regulatory burden on uh, industries like agriculture so this would seem to fall in line with that but was it different under the obama administration could it change if there's a change in administration i mean where is it dependent on this administration backing it 
Oh, it, it, well, it, so it, this is the, this administration is driving the change, but you know I think what people are going to see, and this has been our our mode of operation throughout this administration, is we want change and we want regulatory uh, improvement, but we want it in a defensible way. We want common sense changes, and we think this NEPA guidance provides that. You know, and 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 while we have those environmental groups that are sort of prone to lighting their hair on fire on things like this, there are also some that are more pro working lands that understand the environment better, and from what we've heard. They see some things they like in this. There, there's a lot to be said for a more expedient environmental review process that gets to an endpoint quicker um, and that gives us some decision-making. I think there are some more level heads in the environmental community, Mike, that recognize that if they don't move to change the way this, this law works, they're going to lose it as an effective tool. Um, so, you know, there, there, there's going to be a component here of, of us making sure we're building buy-in and, and advocating for this in a way that's not incendiary. We need to make sure we make clear that the goal here is, is to strengthen the way NEPA works and, and make sure that it's not being abused, because that's really been the default mode. I think we're going to see some buy-in from the moderate environmental community on that to some degree. They're never going to come out and say, gosh, this is, this is fantastic. They're never going to applaud the way we are. Um, but in order to have it survive this administration, in order for it to, uh, for us to continue to make progress on this front in the next administration, regardless of who that may be, um, we're going to need to lay that groundwork now and make sure people understand that the benefit of getting this right far outweighs whoever's getting to abuse it now. Yeah, it's kind of like waters of the U.S. It, sh- it just takes a long time to make changes uh, in these things, and you really have to stay diligent uh, at it. And uh, uh, hopefully this will be the start of uh, getting some things done there. And, Ethan, thank you for the update. It sounds like we'll be talking about this for some time to come. Looking forward to it, Mike. Thank you. All right, take care. Ethan Lane, Vice President, Government Affairs for the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. Again, uh, NCBA uh, applauding the move by the Trump administration to promulgate new regulations to implement the National Environmental Policy Act. Up next, we're going to talk with Purdue Ag Economist Michael Langemeyer about the latest numbers from the Purdue CME Group Ag Economy Barometer. Stay with us. You're listening to AOA. Time now for a market check here on Adams on Agriculture. I'm Rusty Halverson from the American Ag Network. Today's WASDE report from USDA is expected to be the agency's final say on row crop production and yields for the 2019-2020 marketing year, but traders say that even then, the report will not answer all of their questions. No matter what USDA says, it will be suspect given the amount of harvest that still needs to be done across the Corn Belt and in the Northern Plains. Ever since USDA estimated 91.7 million acres of planted corn on June 28th, there's been a significant wedge between USDA's view of the U.S. corn crop and the view of many farmers and traders who have seen this year's weather problems firsthand. In corn futures, not straying too far from unchanged in the first hour of trade, an hour in March corn down a quarter of a cent at 3.83. Soybeans, March contract, a penny and three quarters higher, at 945 and a quarter. Chicago wheat march up a nickel at 567 and a quarter. Kansas City march up five and three quarters at 496. Minneapolis spring wheat march up six at 558. For livestock and American live cattle futures, we're near unchanged in the nearbys. February down seven cents per hundred weight at 126.65. Feeder cattle march down 35 at 146.20. 
Cash cattle, some bids on the table today on a live basis, 122 in the south, asking prices 126 or higher. Lean hog futures, February 87 cents higher, 67.92. April contract up 45 at 74.92. Outside markets on Wall Street, the Dow up 15, NASDAQ up 26, S&P up 5, February crude oil down 35 cents. You're listening to Adams on Agriculture. I'm Rusty Halverson from the American Ag Network. Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. Well, each month we check in with Purdue Ag Economist Michael Langemeyer to get the latest numbers from the Purdue CME Group Ag Economy Barometer. Michael joins us now with the December numbers. Michael, thank you for joining us, and Happy New Year to you. As we look at those December numbers, don't look like they changed too much uh, on the surface, but maybe if we dig down a little bit, we do see some shifting in producers' attitudes. Uh, So what can you tell us about those December numbers? Yeah, starting with the Ag Economy Barometer, the December index at 150 is very similar to the November index at 153. And I think both of those indices have been positively impacted by more positive trade news. Uh, you know, the, 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 the agreement with Mexico and Canada is, is moving forward. Uh, we have a potential agreement with Japan. It looks like there's some good signs with, uh, with the trade, you know, in terms of the trade dispute with China. And so I think that those, are, those, those developments have been critical. Uh, to keeping that index relatively high compared to what we were uh, in the spring and summer of 2019. It will be interesting if indeed we get the signing of the trade deal with China next week. It'll be interesting then when we talk a month from now if we see that ref- uh, a real movement, a shift in producers' attitude in the January numbers. Yes, it will. And I, I think it, I think it uh, in particular to look at the index of future expectations, I think uh, to see if there's movement in that, because I think it would, that would be a, more of a long-term signal uh, that things are things are, are things are going fairly well uh, versus a short-term. Though a short-term, it probably would, would also improve. And let me talk a little bit about uh, the index of current conditions and index of future expectations. Uh, as has been the case since about the summer of 2018, uh, the index of future expectations is higher than the index of current conditions, and so people are more optimistic looking longer term, and we're talking here, we're talking five years out uh, compared to the current situation, and, and I think the trade would, uh, would make that, even, that gap even wider. Yeah, your, your polling, your numbers and the uh, barometer have shown uh, producers have been uh, pretty optimistic about this trade deal getting done with China and, and it being beneficial. Certainly, and uh, uh, the, the people that think that this, uh, the trade deal with China is eventually going to uh, work, in, work in favor of, of production agriculture in the United States, that's been running over 70% uh, since, two, since pretty much all of 2019. It even got to 80% in, in November, uh, and so that's really helping that index of future expectations and, and, and really improving the sediment, uh, particularly long-term. So we've had a whole year to look at now. Uh, how do you look at 2019 as far as these barometer results? What stands out to you? It's just like a lot of things that you talked about on, on, on your show, uh, there, there, there's so much uncertainty, so much variability in 2019. 
and that was clearly reflected in the SAG economy barometer. It's, it's just, you know, I, I encourage uh, listeners to take a look at it on the Internet, the Center for Commercial Agriculture. It's, it's extremely volatile in 2019. I mean, in, in May, we were down uh, t- about 100, uh, which means that the sediment was about the same uh, as it was in late 15, 2016. Not a particularly good time in production agriculture. Uh, and then in July, when, when corn prices improved, we jumped to 150. And then in September, we jumped back down to about 120 uh, because we, we weren't sure what the yields were going to be for corn and soybeans, particularly in the eastern corn belt. Yields were much better than we thought they were going to be. Prices are a little stronger than we thought they were going to be. And so then after September, sediment jumped up to that 150, 153 uh, that we've seen in November, December. So it's been an interesting year, to say the least. Talking with Purdue Ag Economist Michael Langemeyer. Let's talk, Michael, about uh, you asked a question. You asked producers what they expected uh, with their farm's operating loan in 2020 to be larger than or about the same or smaller smaller than 2019. What did they say? Yeah, first of all, uh, we were serving people that are full-time farms, and so that's very important to keep in mind. Uh, but 20%, approximately 20% said they expected their operating loans to uh, to be higher uh, but we followed that question up by saying, "What is the reason for the higher operating loan?" And we gave them the uh, uh, we gave them response uh, possible responses: unpaid operating debt from the previous year, increased farm size, increased operating costs. And unfortunately, uh, you know, unfortunately, about thirty percent of those that said that their operating loan is going to increase uh, it was due to the fact that they uh, have unpaid operating loan uh, amounts. Uh, and so that is the re- from the pre- previous year, and so that's why their operating loan is going to increase uh, in 2020, and that's a signal of financial stress. Uh, if you work through the the math here, looking at those two questions, uh, financial stress for this group appears to be right around five six percent, uh, and so that's the percent of this group that appears to be having quite a bit of difficulty, uh, you know, repaying operating debt. I wonder what the numbers would have been had we not had MFP payments this past year. They would be much, much larger. I, I, I think the financial stress would be higher, but I think one of the big impacts of the MFP has been, is, is, uh, is, 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 the, is the stability in cash rents and land values, and in some areas maybe even a slight tick up uh, in land values. I think that situation would be much, much different. Uh, if you wouldn't have had the MFP payments. I've just done some back-of-the-envelope calculations here in Indiana, and, and I think our cash rents, uh, you know, looking at, looking a year ahead, could have easily been down uh, 10 to $20, if not more, uh, if we wouldn't have had those MFP payments. I was going to ask, uh, what did they say about what their feelings are when it comes to farmland values and cash uh, rental rates yeah, going in, into 2020? In the next year, the, the, the key word there is stability. Uh, vast majority expect no movement in cash rents or land values. There, there is some people that that are that are more optimistic or less optimistic, but it's close to 80 percent thought that cash rents and land values would be relatively flat over the next 12 months. However, as we've talked before, there's much more optimism long term. Uh, looking out five years, over 50 percent, and this has been consistent for most of 2019. This really hasn't moved that much. Uh, this is a reflection of the index of future expectations. Uh, remaining fairly strong throughout 2019, despite all the volatility we had. Over 50%, I think, land values are going to actually increase uh, in the next five years. 
I think 2020 is going to be a very interesting year. Uh, is this a bounce-back year for the ag economy? There's some things in place on the trade front, certainly looking more positive than a year ago. But if it's another challenging weather year like we had last year, that can really offset that. So uh, it's going to be interesting to see how this year plays out. But this could be a, a, a turning point year, perhaps. It, it certainly could. There is a couple big question marks, obviously. Uh, you know, what do we do with the 12 million acres of prevent plant uh, that we did not, and, and specifically uh, that the acres that did not get planted to corn and soybeans? Uh, I know there's there's pockets in the Dakotas, but there's also a big pocket out here uh, in, in uh, uh, northeast Indiana and northwest Ohio. Uh, if those acres go back into production, what's going to happen uh, to prices uh, if that happens? So that's a big question mark. There's also a big question mark on exports right now. Uh, the corn exports are running a little bit below uh, what they did the year before, and so that that's a little concerning. Hopefully those will improve. Uh, the soybean uh, exports continue to be running a little bit below, uh, certainly where they were two years ago, and, and uh, you know, with African swine fever in, in China, uh, you know, really reducing their pork population there. That's also a concern. But there's there's also room there's also some room for optimism. If we get a normal year and get back to trend yields, that's certainly and we have the prices that uh prices consistent with where the futures are now, uh twenty twenty could be a, a pretty good year for some folks. Will you change your questions much this year or any other changes planned for the barometer? We 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 ask questions that are kind of current. Uh, and so it's hard to predict exactly, uh, you know, what questions we'll add, we'll, we'll add throughout 2020. But we'll continue to ask the basic questions going to the ag economy barometer. We'll continue to ask questions related to cash rents and land values. Uh, we're continuing to ask trade questions until that gets uh, completely resolved. And then we've also got a question that I'll talk about a little bit about here. Uh, where we're looking at uh, bearish and bullish corn and soybean prices. We'll continue to ask that question, maybe ask some follow-up questions related to that. Uh, but right now, uh, that, that question is telling us that people are very bullish on corn and becoming uh, less bearish on soybeans. And so, uh, you know, that's consistent with where the, the future prices have been both nearby and looking at the fall of 2020. And so that's certainly good news for sediment, too. And so, and so we'll probably, I'll probably spend more time in 2020 really looking at these questions related to uh, corn and, and soybean expectations and relating that to the barometer. Well, every year is challenging for those in agriculture, but hopefully 2020 will not be quite as challenging as 2019. I mean, just it just seemed like so, it was that storm of things coming together, whether on the trade wars and the, the weather issues. I mean, it, 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 as many have said, let's turn the page in 2019 and, and really happy to get into 2020. I would definitely be in that camp myself, and, and my family would too. <laughs> Yeah. Well, it's interesting to to look at these numbers from month to month, and uh, they give us a real snapshot of uh, of how producers are feeling. And as we talked about, it kind of very dependent on what's happening at that time, right? And uh, so here in January, we get this trade deal signed. That really could uh, make a difference in the numbers. So I'll be anxious to talk with you a month from now and see what they have to say. So uh, good to talk with you, Michael. Thanks a lot, and we'll be right, we'll look forward to talking often here in 2020 and going over the numbers. Thank you.
All right, take care. Purdue Ag Economist Michael Langemeyer, he joins us each month with the latest Purdue CME Group Ag Economy Barometer results. Again, the December numbers are showing not much change from those November numbers, but again, it'll be maybe a little different when we talk again in February, looking back at January, depending on what this announcement is on China, and also maybe we'll have USMCA done by then, hopefully. Coming up next, Mike's Soapbox. Going to talk about these uh, plant-based meat alternatives that are coming into the marketplace more and more. Stay with us. That's coming up next here on AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Weeds want to restrict your freedom and crush the spirit of your soybeans. Never fear. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of superior weed control is here with Liberty Herbicide. Stand proud with greater application flexibility, unmatched convenience, and excellent performance combined with the Liberty Link, Liberty Link GT27, and Enlist E3 trait systems. And it has no known resistance in U.S. row crops. Talk with your BASF rep or authorized retailer about Liberty Herbicide. Always read and follow label directions. The sounds of success vary from person to person. Over to second in time on the first double play. Success sounds like this to a Credenz soybean grower. When you pick Credenz, you get a precise variety that fits your field. A variety built to work in your soil type and conditions with targeted traits for local pest and disease pressures. Earning the satisfaction of a successful soybean crop? That's smart. Talk to your authorized Credenz retailer or local BASF seed advisor. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Okay, we'll call this segment today Mike's Soapbox. We'll do this from time to time on uh, various topics. And you've heard me talk about this one uh but I wanted to kind of get in it some more because I think it's a it's a key topic moving forward, especially for animal agriculture in particular, but all of agriculture in general. Uh, that is uh, the the introduction of these new plant-based meat alternatives. And I guess in, uh, for full disclosure here, um, I am, and for those of you that know me, you know this very well. I am a big meat eater, big meat eater. And I have not tried any of these plant-based products and really don't intend to. Uh, and I'm, but I, this isn't about me putting them down or telling you not to eat them. That's not what I uh, want to do here. Uh, I have a bigger concern than a new product coming on the market that I, you know, that I don't uh, plan on consuming. But I'm not telling people not to. Let's get into this. Um, you know, pork plants are not new. We're used to pork plants. They're processing plants. But what is new are these now these plant-based pork products that are uh, coming onto the market. And um, Impossible Foods planning to add pork and sausage products and perhaps eventually plant-based bacon as well. Now, the pork industry, as the dairy and beef industries before them, is now trying to defend and protect its name and they are pointing out that it is impossible to make pork from plants. Like the dairy industry has pointed out, you don't get milk from almonds and things like that. So this, the, the battle is on. And I think it's a significant battle moving forward for a number of reasons. You know, it's one thing 
for new products to come into the market. That is competition. It happens all the time. It's a good thing, really, in many ways. Um, gives consumers choice. It uh, expands food production, things like that. And then you let uh, the marketplace uh, determine, you know, who's successful and who's not. That is fine. Here's here's what concerns me about what's going on uh, with this particular issue and these new plant-based products. The stated goal of Impossible Foods, one of these companies producing these products, the stated goal of Impossible Foods is to, and these are the words of their founder and CEO, quote, our mission is to completely replace animals in the global food system. He went on to predict that by 2035, animals as a food production technology are going to be history. The top scientist at Impossible Foods told our friends at AgriPulse recently, the company's mission is to replace all of animal agriculture by 2035. Animal agriculture, the scientist says, is the most destructive industry on our planet, citing the amount of land and water used for raising livestock and poultry, as well as the carbon emissions and pollution associated with farming, end quote. So, to me, that is the real issue here, not a new product competing in the marketplace or in the meat case, but their goal to eliminate animal agriculture. Unlike some animal rights groups that have a very similar agenda, but try to publicly hide it, these animal rights groups will say, oh, we're not trying to end animal agriculture, we're just trying to protect animals. Well, really, their agenda is to end animal agriculture. Uh, so they try to publicly hide it. This company's not. They've come out front and center and said what their stated intentions are. Now, it remains to be seen whether these products can stand up to increased scrutiny. Now, people looking at the sodium content and the fact that they're highly processed, and, and certainly on, on a price level, that remains to be seen if they can compete. But there's no denying they have an appeal to a segment of consumers who have environmental and production method concerns about traditional meat products. So it's going to be interesting to see how animal agriculture responds. So far, as I mentioned earlier, the primary res response has been protect the name of their products. Try to avoid consumer confusion. Protect the names of dairy and beef and pork. That's understandable. But the next step, I think, needs to be a more comprehensive campaign to educate consumers on the nutritional and the environmental attributes of animal agriculture. Perhaps we need the livestock groups to actually come together to fund some sort of a real meat campaign and get their message out there, combine forces, some strength in numbers. You know, interestingly, it, someone kind of caught in the middle in all this are soybean growers because the soybean industry is constantly looking for new markets, obviously, and developing new products. And they have some of these uh, plant-based products, too. Soybean growers searching for those new markets may actually do so at the risk of losing what has been their biggest customer, the livestock industry. Hopefully, hopefully there is room for both. But time will tell if these plant-based products will follow a similar path to organic products. Organic production has a niche market with a passionate but still somewhat limited segment of consumers. Will that be the path that uh, these alternative meat products follow? Time will tell. 
But the concern, I think, uh, for the livestock industry or the challenge will be this. How big is the consumer group out there that feels like uh, one man at the uh, Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas this week said he's drawn to the product because he feels it's another way of saving the environment while also reducing environmental costs. If you get enough people who feel that uh, by consuming these products they are somehow saving the planet, then you've got a bigger challenge if you're in animal agriculture and it makes it more incumbent upon animal agriculture to tell its story and to get the information out there. The challenge will be, as we've seen with the GMO debate, facts don't always win the argument. So that is the challenge ahead. You may have all the facts on your side in the world, but that may not win a debate that's as emotional as this one looks to be. So it's going to be a challenge. Hopefully there's room for both. We have an expanding world population. We need as much food as possible. But what I don't like is when one industry or segment or company or brand comes out and says our goal is to eliminate someone else. That, I think, is the real problem and the challenge facing animal agriculture. Thanks for joining me on Mike's Soapbox and today on AOA. Have a great weekend, everyone. Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Farmers can't choose the weather, trade policy, or market prices, but they can choose the most advanced dicamba with confidence. Ingenia Herbicide has the lowest volatility of all dicamba salts for more successful on-target applications, and it's straight from the dicamba experts, BASF. So make the confident choice for your soybean crop. Talk to your BASF rep or authorized retailer. Ingenia Herbicide is a U.S. EPA restricted-use pesticide. Additional state restrictions may apply. Always read and follow label directions. The patented pod shatter reduction technology canola hybrids from Invigor are the perfect blend of strength and durability. Stronger pod seams and stems protect the canola seeds within while protecting you from potential yield loss. And that gives you added flexibility at harvest, even when dealing with adverse weather conditions. Shattering yield records, not pods. That's smart. Contact your local BASF seed advisor today. Always read and follow label directions.